I posted a terrible looking landing page with Portuguese spelling errors online. <laughs> yeah. And I got like a few hundred people signed up and they, you know, I had calls with all of them, the typical customer discovery, lean startup trying to learn. And what I realized is that they don't want to come learn how to code. They already know how to code. They want to learn how to do interviews in English and how to have a good uh, resume and, and just get a job in Canada or originally Vancouver, right? Like Van Hack is Vancouver for hackers, but now it's a van that moves hackers. Uh, anyway, but yeah, so that that was our, our first product. It was called Van Hack Premium. Now it's called Van Hack Academy, where we teach soft skills to tech talent and help them prepare themselves for international job search. And then that built up what is now one of the world's largest uh, talent pools of senior tech talent who's interested in international jobs. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to the GMI Rocket Show. Today is episode 33. I'm your host, Roman Zelichenko. I'm a former US immigration attorney turned entrepreneur. I'm the founder of Laborless, an immigration tech company that automates H1B compliance, and also the founder of GMI Rocket, which brings you this show. Today, the 33rd episode, I'm super excited for my guest, for our guest, uh, Ilya Brodsky, who is the CEO and founder of Van Hack. Now, so Van Hack is based out of um, Canada and Vancouver, British Columbia. And what Van Hack does is they connect tech talent from around the world to jobs, to employers that need to hire tech talent. And those jobs are not just in Canada. Those jobs could be remote. They could be all over the world. They have a massive community of tech folks who are part of Van Hack, who you know take advantage of Van Hack's um, different courses and different training and things like that to make them better equipped to become really strong candidates for these great jobs. Um, super cool. It's basically, you know, helping people move around the world or in some cases stay remote to provide technology skill to the companies that need it. I'm really excited to talk about it because it ties directly in with the immigration space, right? Companies that want to hire someone from abroad, well, how do they find those folks? And then how do they get them over? And, you know, there's so many questions. And I think Van Hack has a really, really cool, really, really cool play within this space. So Without further ado, Ilya, thank you so much for, for joining and um, for sharing your time here on Jimara. Yeah, my pleasure, uh, Roman. This is a lot of fun. I've been looking forward to this for a while. Lucky number 33. So uh, Yeah, that's right. <laughs> lucky, lucky number 33. I, you know, it's, I, remember, I remember distinctly after the first episode I did, I was like, oh my God, I just went live and did this show. Yeah. Um, and now it's been you know, more than half a year. It's really, really crazy. And I'm just... First of all, lucky to have people like you who are just willing to come on and share their story. And also just to think about how many entrepreneurs there, there are in the world building really cool companies, specifically tech-focused companies um, in and around immigration, right? Mm. I mean, you think of immigration tech as this really kind of niche thing, but when you really broaden the scope of what the world of immigration looks like, there are a lot of people doing really cool things. So um, again, thank you for... for um, for joining. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think um, immigration tech does not get a lot of love. It's not like fintech or, I don't know, something more, I guess, hot, Bitcoin, et cetera, which I guess uh, fintech as well. But, you know, um, it's it's one of those underrepresented tech fields and also very much needed, um, right? Like there's not much innovation happening around immigration, usually because government, right? So I think it's really cool to connect with other immigration tech entrepreneurs and hear their stories and, and kind of contribute my voice. So yeah, I'm also kind of become an immigration nerd, not a consultant myself, but feel like I am one, maybe an honorary one. Um, so it's something that I've, I've been passionate about for the last five years. And it's a big part of my life personally as well. 
Yeah, and I'm super excited to to dig into your story because you've been all around, you've lived all around the world, you've worked around the world. Um, okay, so to jump, you know, from the beginning, right? Because we can jump right into the company, but the the beauty of these conversations is understanding where you come from, what your motivations are, and sort of how you got to starting the company that you started. So you you moved. Were you born in Israel or you moved and you were born in Canada? So I was born in the Soviet Union. Um, Soviet Union. Yeah, born in, in, in what I guess former Soviet Union uh, in, in Siberia, which is now Russia, of course, um, and uh, left when I was two and a half. So my first memory was actually getting on a flight to go to, uh, from Krasnoyarsk, which is the city I was born in, to, to Moscow, uh, and then from Moscow to Tel Aviv. Uh, so yeah, that, that, that was kind of a, I guess, a dramatic, dramatic experience when you're two and a half years old. So it kind of was formed in my memory and, um, remember arriving in, in Tel Aviv and taking a van to Ofra, which is the city we, we lived in. And yeah, it was, uh, was, a I guess back then kind of a crazy to look, look, you know, look back on how everything was, but, uh, it's one of those things like immigrating to a place you've never, never been, never heard of, never, not heard of, but never had like, just it's just funny to, to, to think about like how immigration was in the early '90s to how immigration is now, right? The early early 20s, uh, 2020. So a lot has changed. Um, so basically, I, I moved. I spent two and a half years in Israel. I moved to Vancouver, Canada, uh, where I grew up when I was five, and then I went to school in the U.S. for three years in upstate New York, and then went to Brazil for four years, and then came back to Canada, and then traveled a little bit about around South America, Europe, uh, and, and uh, yeah, just like to go out and see the world. Yeah, that's a lot of traveling. So you moved to because I was also born in the former Soviet Union in Ukraine, mm. and I also left at two and a half years old, and I actually don't remember any of it. So I'm, you know, I, I tell my parents all the time, like I kind of wish I did, just because it would be more of my identity. Mm. But they're basically like, it's probably better that you don't. Um, yeah. But, but yeah. you, but but we moved to from the Soviet Union to Austria for about six months, and then we came to New York. You mm. moved at two and a half to Israel, and then mm. I guess at around five years old, if I'm getting that correct, you moved to Vancouver. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not like I have vivid memories of everything that happened; I'm just kind of like a few little glimpses here and there. But uh, yeah, but so we, we were able to get out. I mean, I think similar to your family, right? Because you know, because if, if you're Jewish, you can uh, they let a lot, of, a lot of Jewish people out. And I think it's interesting too, like because we're both from the Soviet Union, and back then the Soviet Union, you couldn't leave. Like it was literally trapped in your own country, right? Mm-hmm. Like you, you were, it's not like, forget about getting a visa to get into somewhere. You couldn't even get a visa to get out. So uh, yeah, it's kind of a crazy world where like you, you grow up in a country, I, I guess now, you know, you sell some places like North Korea, et cetera, that are like that. But um, a lot of parts of the world aren't, aren't like that. And I think a lot of people can't really even imagine what it'd be like living in a country where you just like, you, you can't even leave. That's not even a possibility. You have to get like a special passport and permission. Um, so I guess both of our families were lucky enough to get that. And, and we had our, our several ways of getting to North America. Absolutely. Do you remember anything about your like f- several years that you spent in Israel before you came to Canada? Yeah, a lot. Um, yeah, we lived in kind of like a settlement in the West Bank. <laughs> wow. Um, surrounded by like a, a fence and, and, and like a military checkpoint, which is, yeah, I went and I went on birthright in 2010 and went back to that city. Uh, we had like a little caravan, one room, um, basically a trailer park. <laughs> uh, yes, you can call it that. Um, I remember going to school. I remember, I remember going to uh, Jerusalem, going to the wall. My parents said that I met Gorbachev when he was there, apparently. I don't remember that, but that, yeah, that, that sounds cool from what they say. <laughs> like the wow. former president, but yeah, no, I don't, I don't actually remember that. Yeah, it's funny. I have memories of myself speaking Hebrew. Like I, I know what I'm saying in English. Like I, I remember like speaking Hebrew and like with my friends and stuff um, when I was young. But I don't actually know what I said. Um, my dad worked on a chicken farm, um, so I remember hanging out with the chickens a lot and picking uh, like getting eggs. 
or like running away from them when they scared me. Um, and yeah, like had some friends in the neighborhood. <laughs> yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's super crazy. So do you do you speak Hebrew now? Um, or no, Shalom Hover, Tadaroba, Bokertov. Right, just a, just a few yeah. phrases. Yeah, yeah. yeah. When I, again, when I went on birthright, like, the, yeah, it was weird. Like, I, I, I didn't understand anything. So, because um, I, I when I moved, I remember, I remember distinctly when I moved to Vancouver to Canada, I had to like learn English, and that was really hard for me. Uh, you know, uh, five and you know ESL and all that, or I guess ETL, third language. But um, it was really hard, and so I, I think I like purposely just. And not purposely, but when you're so young, you kind of forget. And I didn't have anyone to speak Hebrew with, so I just learned English yeah. instead. Yeah. Right? Yeah, because it's not like your parents spoke Hebrew. I mean, they they moved to they're Russian. I'm assuming you speak Russian. Yeah, or spoke Russian. Russian at home. Yeah, I speak Russian. But um, yeah. they used they they spoke they spoke it like not as well as I did. I actually spoke it better because you know when you're a kid, you're faster. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. But then you got it. Yeah. 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 Wow. So so you grew up in Vancouver, um, and you went to you mentioned you went to college in upstate. You went to Cornell and Ithaca. I went to Binghamton, so just like an hour and oh, a half. Cool. Away. Yeah. yeah so super close, and visited Cornell. Beautiful or Ithaca is a beautiful city. Yeah. Um, lots of right great restaurants and things like that. But you you spent prior to that you grew up and you went to high school and everything that was on Vancouver. Yeah, yeah. So I grew up in Vancouver um, and uh, yeah lived lived here my whole life until university, high school, uh, elementary school, high school. Um, I grew up swimming, so I got to travel a lot for swimming. I went to Australia uh-huh. a couple times. Went to California, Oregon, um, all around Canada. So um, and that's actually how I got into Cornell. Um, was never like a good student. I was always an okay student and, and a decent, like, decent athlete. So yeah, it kind of worked out. But um, anyway, uh, yeah, yeah. I grew up, grew up here in Vancouver. It's like uh, lucky, you know. I, I feel very fortunate to live here. It's one of the best places in the world, and that's why I'm back here now after you know uh, leaving for a while and coming back. Yeah, Vancouver is beautiful. I still have not been, but I really want to go to Whistler. Um, <laughs> yeah, one of these winters. So did you? So I know you studied, um, I think, economics or applied economics at Cornell. Yeah. Did you kind of, you know, did you were you, were you one of those kids growing up or like in high school that you just like were a bit hustler, like business, starting businesses, or were you kind of like, you know, economics is? I, I studied econ too. Um, mm-hmm. It's pretty nerdy. It's not like you know hustling and bustling. It's like mathematical equations. So yeah, I was the first one. Um, yeah. I, I the, the I think that the. The name economics and man, like applied economics and management is just a fancy way of saying the business school. Mm-hmm. Although there were a lot of like hardcore econ classes and finance classes, I, I stayed away from those um, <laughs> or just like took the minimum ones. Although I did really enjoy my finance class, but I uh, I took more like the marketing um, kind of the entrepreneurship minors um, lecture series where different entrepreneurs would come in and talk about their experiences. And yeah, growing up as a kid, I was definitely one of the um, kind of trying to always make money. Like we were pretty poor, right? Like, uh, American family, I'm guessing you can relate, right? Like you try and try and, um, and any kind of five cents that you can use at 7-Eleven to buy some candies was, was precious. Um, so like lemonade stands, um, started like knocking on doors, asking for people's, uh, recyclables, like bottles and pop cans to go take them to, to, to get, uh, those five cent candies that I mentioned or, or 25 cents to play, uh, Mortal Kombat arcade games, <laughs> just things like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and then like, I, I also did, um, uh, I was really into this uh, program called college pro painting, which was like, uh, it wasn't really like entrepreneurial as a job, but you go, you go to door to door. And I guess that's where my sales experience came or started is just like knocking on people's doors and convincing them to get housing estimates for, for painting their houses. So mm-hmm. I would do that a lot. And, and, um, yeah, just generally like always trying to do something to make some money. 
um, mm-hmm. or just to learn, right? And my parents were also into MLM um, when we first moved. So I learned a lot from uh, Amway, like the very famous one. Um, didn't really go into it too much, but like learned a lot from, from that. And, and that made an impact on me as well. What was it? Because I've heard a lot of podcasts people, where people talk about doing door-to-door sales and how much that really impacted them eventually mm-hmm. when they started their, their own company. Because it kind of, you know, it builds this like tough skin. I mean, you literally have people slamming door in your face. Yeah. You have any good... I've never done it. And I probably, you know, I feel like I'm pretty outgoing, but I would be petrified to go do mm-hmm. door-to-door sales. What was that experience like for you? I'm just, I'm genuinely curious. Yeah. Well, you know, I started when I was really young, like, and it wasn't like one of those things where it's like, I don't, I don't know how we started. It was my, me and my friend Anton. And like, we just had this idea because I, I have no idea how it started. I just remember that we did it. And I was five or six, like I was really young, uh, maybe seven. I don't know. And at that time, I think we were just so young that we didn't really expect much. And like having a random six or seven year old knock on your door and say like, Hey, do you have any recyclables? It's like pretty easy sell. So I remember like actually getting a lot of people being like, yeah, here's a bottle of wine that I've, or like, cause it's, it, you know, it's not like it's, it's, it's more just like doing them. Like they were doing us a favor. Right. It's not like we were actually selling anything to them. Like, cause if you think about it, they could easily go and recycle those things. Right. But like back then, I guess I just kind of, you know, it was just like a hobby. It wasn't, and it wasn't like I was too naive to be scared. It was just, right. and I guess if you really think about it now, like that probably was dangerous. That I <laughs> right. As a, such a young kid, uh, <laughs> my son won't be doing that. Uh, at least maybe I'll be, I'll be watching him, but you know, right. that, that was, that was, it was also in the, in, in the nineties. And I think things like a little bit more, um, you know, safer back then, but yeah. And then I guess when I was in high school, um, yeah, I guess that there was always that fear, but it was more like the excitement of, of when it'll happen, like like when it does happen. And I, I think I got paid 10 bucks for every painting estimate. And, you know, some nights I got 10, 10 estimates. That's like a hundred bucks. And um, it's a lot of money for, I guess, 14, 15 year old kid. Um, so yeah, I, I, I don't know. Um, it just always been part of my personality. Like me, my, my brother, like my younger brother, we're complete opposites. Like he's very much like, he's an amazing developer, designer, like tech he's not outgoing. Like I can't code worth my, you know, save my life. And if you saw my designs from the early days of Anhack, you, you know, you'd laugh. Um, but you know, we, we have, each person has their strengths and, and, um, yeah, I, I don't know really, I think it's just a natural thing that I did. Um, so yeah. Cool. No, that's awesome. I, I, I was just curious, you know, I always, I always wonder if I had done that, whether things would have been different or if I would like started my entrepreneurial journey, if you will, earlier on. Um, yeah, yeah, I don't think so. Like, because because really, like my success, like really only like quote unquote success came when I was like in my mid to late twenties. So um, I guess every experience builds upon itself. But you know, there's different things you can do, right? Like whether that's, uh, I mean, I'm not sure. You know, the things that you did growing up, but I'm sure they they had an impact to, to, on you as well. Hundred percent. Yeah. The honestly, the thing that impacted me the most because I was really really shy when I was a kid. The thing mm. that impacted me the most, and I will say this live on the air. <laughs> um, I worked at Abercrombie and Fitch in the mall nice. here, and um, I wasn't one of those obviously like greeters in the front, but I worked in the store and everyone has to be nice to the, yeah. you know, the people coming in. And that forced me because I had no, you know, it was my job to talk to strangers and that forced mm-hmm. me to talk to strangers. The biggest thing, my biggest takeaway from that job was just getting out of my comfort zone and like getting out of my shell and just being yeah. able to come up to anyone. Yeah. Um, that, that was, I mean, I wasn't a kid. I was 16, 17, but, but still. Um, yeah, it's performative. And like, I guess like you just kind of learn that what's the worst thing that can happen, right? Like you already have like zero in sales. So people right. ask a bunch of people and they all say, no, you're where you started. So <laughs> exactly. 
Totally. Yeah. I mean, and that mindset, I think as you get older, if you're not used to that, it might be scary, but you're right. If you have that experience during your formative years, it really helps. Um, so, all right, you, you went to Cornell, um, you studied economics, you swam, um, you know, and, and I was reading about you and sort of your background. And it sounds like you started your first kind of venture, if you will, I read your senior year, right? So it was like a hiking trip that you put together. Yeah. Um, you ended up rebranding and calling it Mountains for Moms. Can you talk a little bit about sort of, because it's so interesting. And when I look at the things that you did afterwards, it sort of doesn't tie into it thematically, I think. Mm. And so I'm curious, how did you get into it? If you can share um, and sort of what was your role with that as um, you know the founder or, or you know organizer? Yeah, definitely. That was, the, um, you know, looking back, like, probably one of the highlights of, of my life in a way like that whole experience just because um it tied a bunch of things that i like together and um most importantly i got to kind of climb on kilimanjaro and, and kind of have this really like, cool life experience in africa um and like yeah that 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 was really really cool um but um it, it was one of those things where it went it was a little bit against the grain for me like kind of like what you said i i grew up swimming and like that was my life and i got into cornell with swimming but my senior year, my summer, my, between my junior and senior year, I interned in, in, in um, at a company in Australia and um, was kind of bored at work one day and Googling around for what to do uh, with, with this uh, grant that I had received or scholarship to do volunteer work abroad. If, if uh, Cornell had this program called Cornell Tradition, where if you have, uh, if they, they, would, um, comp, like they would pay for your flight and hotel uh, if you were doing international volunteer work. Uh, it was a way to kind of help students see the world and, and not just international, like any volunteer work they would, they would like, if you were, I don't know if you spent, uh, anyway, it doesn't matter. It, it's, it's, it was like a, it was a really good program. Um, so usually people get that program when they start, like at university and you have four years to spend $4,000. And I actually got into it my senior year. So I only had one year. So I had to kind of go big and I was like, I have this opportunity and what am I going to do is like literally spend this money. Like this is such a gift and I have to make the best of it. And so I was looking around for things to do during, uh, during winter break or spring break, um, winter break, like kind of the first one. Um, and I read this article in, um, uh, it was, it was a Ning network. Uh, I don't know if you remember what those are. It was kind of like a previous, it was like, I used to be like a way to create a community online, um, back in, I guess, 20, 2009. Wow. And, uh, it was a bunch of Cornell alumni sharing stories. And one of them was this guy named Seth Cochran, who, um, started a, a program or went, did a Kilimanjaro fundraising climb and raised money for cleft lip surgery. And I thought that was really cool because I was thinking, because I was part of this program in university called Bold that, and one of the things we did was we raised money for solar panels in Kenya. And uh, I was thinking like go to Kenya and maybe like help them with, with getting more solar panels or something like that. And um, I was really into social entrepreneurship in college. Like I really got into that, uh, that during that whole space at that time. And it was, it was a, um, something I was thinking, like, what am I going to do? So anyway, I, I read this article and I thought, you know what, let me reach out to Seth. And I, I reached out to him and he, um, he replied right away, like 10 minutes later and we set up a call. Um, and he was like, you know, like I started this new charity called Operation Fistula and we raise money for, uh, for women who have obstetric fistula, which is a condition that occurs during child labor where a woman, if she's malnutrition or too, too kind of skinny, has like a miscarriage and ends up getting a fistula. Um, in her bowels, which means she can't, she's incontinent, can't control her bowels and basically gets excommunicated from, you know, her husband divorces her if she, she's married and like, she just basically like smells really bad all the time. And, um, it's just a really terrible life condition, right? Like you're still alive, but like you basically have your life quality go to really low and it's a $250 surgery to fix it and takes like half an hour. So it's a really easy fix and a really big like input to, to impact. 
Um, so he, he kind of talked about that and I hadn't heard of it before. And I thought that was really interesting. And, um, you know, he said, I'll coach you through the whole process and, you know, set you up with the, the guides and explain how everything will work. And then you should just look in if you focus on my charity. And I said, of course, that, that sounds good. Um, and so I came back to college and uh, I had to make a really hard decision whether I was going to continue swimming or not. So swimming was like, like basically my identity, like, right. Like it's kind of how laborless, you know, is for you or Van Heck is, I guess, for for me, it's like, it's like part of who you are. Um, and as like as a student athlete growing up, but my goal like growing up was to go to the Olympics. A bunch of my friends went to the Olympics um, and 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 you know, represent Canada and other countries. And I had to choose like choose: do I want to keep swimming or not? And I realized like swimming kind of got me this far. And if I swim my senior year, it's not going to make a huge difference. But if I do this kind of crazy different thing, then that'll make like a, a you know maybe make a bigger difference in my life and also be a more fun experience. And so I decided to, to stop swimming, which was a really tough decision, and, and uh, kind of go all in on, on, on Mountains for Moms. Back then, it was called the, a fist, uh, the Fistula Free Climb, and then we rebranded. And I remember, like, um, I started a club. So I guess when you start about starting, like, starting a company, like, Cornell, anyone can start a club. So you just go and, like, register the club. And, um, and I was too late because every, every day or every year they have this club day for, like, all incoming freshmen or, you know, everyone who wants to go. And it was in this huge auditorium, and they had a bunch of tables. And I, and I like went to literally every single table, table by table, being like, hey, does your club want to partner with my club and help me promote this trip that I'm doing? I'm looking for students to come with me because uh, I wanted to raise as much money as possible. So I figured if more people came with me to, to Kilimanjaro, then more people would like it'd be a bigger network to ask their friends for donations. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, just like, again, back to the hustle and just asked a bunch of people. And at, at the end of that, that day, I remember some, I was telling someone about this and then a guy came up to me, he was listening to our conversation. He's like, you know what? You should go and talk to that guy who's doing the Kilimanjaro trip. Like this sounds like you two should talk. And I was like, well, that that's me. I'm that guy. <laughs> and it was like, well, where did, where did it spread, I guess. Um, and then ended up recruiting 11 people or 13 people. I forget exactly now how many, um, but like something around that and different students. We have one alumni come as well. And uh, yeah, it was a really cool experience. Um, we, we got to go to Africa and spend two weeks there, one week, you know, climbing, one week um, we, we went on a safari, went to Zanzibar, it was really fun, um, and raised up believe $8,000 for charity. Uh, and then the best part was that um, this, like, we were in the newspaper and like people heard about it and then it got duplicated at Dartmouth and uh, other students at North Northwestern, as well as uh, another group at Cornell. So I think there were three or four other climbs that happened post ours. And, um, you know, it didn't really last too much more than that, but like it kind of, um, that that's where, where it kind of ended, but, um, it was a really cool life experience and it um, led me to getting my job, uh, my first job at university. Cause it was like, I was, I was applying for a job that was looking for like leader with lead, people with leadership experience. Mm-hmm. And I could point to that uh, experience as being a leadership experience. So anyway, that's a huge story, but, uh, that's kind of how, how Mountains for Lawns came about. No, it's, I mean, it's incredible because you, you think about all of the different sort of real life skills that you pulled from putting this together, right? I mean, forget about just the travel, but you you raised funding, you had to sell, you had to just, you know, figure things out in terms of training people. And, and like you said, leadership, it's incredible. And I, I, I like how you share that it was kind of scary for you or a big decision to stop swimming, but it you kind of sounds like you made the right decision. I mean, in your head, you were saying, all right, the next year is not going to, there's not going to be a huge substantial impact on the rest of my life it's time for me to do something big again. And I mm. felt like it feels to me like this was like a big thing, which is super cool. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Looking back, it definitely was the right choice. Uh-huh. And obviously, you know, first of all, that was entrepreneurial. Starting a club. I mean, I started my first entrepreneurial endeavor was starting a club in law school. 
I had never, you know, because as an entrepreneur, I think you just create something out of nothing. You have an idea and you have to implement it somehow into the world. And, you know, obviously you had done that before with maybe selling uh, mm-hmm. lemonade or, or what have you. And I, but this was like a structured like organization, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it sounds cool because you took that and you turned it into your first full-time job. Now, the first full-time job, was this in Brazil now? Yeah, yeah. So I was part of a group called ISEC, which uh, is uh, the world's largest uh, student-run nonprofit that helps students get jobs abroad, which is mm-hmm. yeah, similar to Van Hack in a way. So there's parallels there. Um, and so yeah, hey, ISEC, if anyone knows uh, or is part of ISEC, um, it's a pretty, pretty cool, like storied organization that was started after World War II and it's a very, very awesome program. Anyway, they, they, um, I had been, so, so my first, my winter break, I went to, uh, to Tanzania and then my, my spring break, I actually went to Rio and did a volunteer, uh, spring break in, in, in Rio, uh, cleaning up, um, a community center in, in a favela in the slum, in the slum in Rio. Um, and I love that, that experience. It was really, really great. Um, and I, at that week, got an email from ISEC saying there's a job for Canadians to work in Brazil. And I was like, sign me up. That's, that's awesome. And it happened to be at the world's uh, second largest mining company, Valley, um, and uh, was just a fantastic experience. Um, so, yeah, that, that, uh, that, that uh, first job actually literally was, was in Brazil. Like, it was also around the time where, um, and I'm sure you remember this, like 2000. 2010, um, you know, the financial crisis and everyone in New York was kind of like all my friends were going to work for Goldman and, and um, you know, Deutsche Bank and all those companies. And I didn't want to be part of that scene. Like I just, it wasn't for me. So um, I, I kind of wanted to look, I was looking for something different and, and going abroad. I actually had offers in uh, Brazil, India, and, 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 and China. And I chose Brazil um, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad I did. It worked out, but uh, I always wanted to get my first job abroad after university. That's so cool. Did you have to go through an immigration, like a visa, work visa process? You know, uh, Valley, being the world's second largest mining company, has its perks, and uh, they, they were able to facilitate that for me. So uh, I did have to go to the Brazilian consulate. I remember doing my visa, but I had like, um, you know, they, they, they took care of all that. I didn't have to worry about it. They just said, get this and do this and, and you'll be fine. So, I mean, you, you kind of went through their global mobility program. I mean, if you take a step back, yeah, and look at, yeah, they yeah, were they were yeah. relocating an employee yeah, in Canada yes. to Brazil. Yes. Yeah, it, it was crazy. Like the, the the first two weeks, actually, I spent in Indonesia. That, that was even crazier. Like, so, I mean, this, I think this is what happens when you're like a multi-billion dollar company that you can just like have a trainee. Like I literally flew from Vancouver to Toronto, spent three days in Toronto to meet my, my, my boss in Canada, like in my Canadian Toronto manager. And then I flew back through Vancouver to Indonesia to spend two weeks in Indonesia, like learning about this, this new production system that we're implementing. And then from Indonesia, I flew to Brazil. So it was a crazy experience. Um, in, in Indonesia, we were like in a mine in the middle of nowhere, um, South Sulawesi is the, 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 the island there with a, a copper mine or nickel mine, sorry. Um, and yeah, uh, it, it was a cool experience, a different, uh, life experience, but, uh, yeah, Valley was a um, crazy, crazy large company, and it also showed me things I don't like about like large bureaucratic organizations. Um, but it definitely had a lot of perks. It's super, super crazy. Um, so I, I want to before we jump out of Brazil, you know, I, I want to explore your time there a little bit because you you worked for the mining company, you left the mining company, but as far as I understand, you kind of stayed in Brazil and then like launched a few ventures or at least partnered with a few ventures. Yeah, Can you talk a little bit about that because again, I think it's interesting. Not only that, you know, first of all, these ventures, I, as far as I read, 
kind of mostly dealt with sort of connecting people with opportunities and jobs mm-hmm. and things mm-hmm. like that, which mm-hmm. to your point is really kind of what you're doing right now with VanHack, number one. Yeah. But number two, I'm also interested from maybe if you know, from the immigration perspective, how are you able to do all this in Brazil? Uh, okay. Um, so I laugh because there's some, uh, yeah, so I, I guess I'll just say like, I, I spent like six or seven months living illegally uh, in Brazil. So I was an illegal immigrant uh, in my life. Um, <laughs> and then the funny part about that is that the fine or the, like the penalty for that is literally um, like $300 penalty that you have to pay. And that's it. Like that, that's literally it. There's no like jail time or like, you're not going to go, you know, go into some processing center or whatever. I mean, uh, the Im- illegal immigration process, problem in Brazil isn't that big because, um, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's Brazil just is happy to have people there. And yeah, it, the, anyway, it's a whole like mess thing, but babe, I can get into that more, but, um, it worked out. Like I paid my fee and I'm, I'm good from a legal point of view. It's just funny. Um, yeah, it, but it actually, it was, um, like one of the reasons why I changed jobs and like led me to some stuff. So, okay. So let, let where, where should we start? 2012. So 2012, um, uh, I, I, I like, I, I, Kind of similar to how I decided to quit swimming, I decided to quit Valley and was like a big leap or um, literally 2012 was a leap year. And there's this project called the Leap Project. And I leaped and kind of quit uh, uh, Valley, a very, very like stable, um, good job, especially for like, I think it was 22 at the time uh, or 23 or something. And and um, I I was um, about to get like a, a, a like. Uh, get a, a BMW. So I was about to lease a car, like a very expensive car. Um, and, and like, kind of like my friend was like, you know, this is a trap. You don't want to do this. Like you're going to be stuck there. You have to make the payments. You won't be able to leave. And I spent a, a week in, in, in Rio, which would have been my last week in Brazil uh, with Valley right in December of 2021, sorry, 2011, uh, 10 years ago, I guess. And um, that week I had more fun in that one week than I did like all this other, like the six months prior that I was living in Canada. Um, and it, it, you know, had to do with the weather, had to do with my friends that I had made in Brazil. I got to see them again. Um, I just felt alive. And so I remember distinctly being like, if there's a way for me to come back to Brazil, like universe, I'm open, show me a sign. Um, and that, that on the way back on the flight back from, from Rio to Vancouver, I was in line with, um, uh, you know, the other, the other passengers to get on the flight and the lady behind, behind me turned around and asked me for the time. And I told her and we started chatting Turned out she was a professor of social entrepreneurship at Stanford, and she had a yeah, she's crazy. And she had a nonprofit that um, uh, that did uh, data collection in the, in, in, in the favelas and in the slums of Rio in order to understand better what the consumer uh, goods like consumer trends were in, in the favelas, as well as giving demographic and like socioeconomic data uh, back to the communities. So basically, and, and, and the best thing was that they would employ local youth who used to be drug dealers or like have some hardships to go out and do those, do those services and help them get jobs and training. Uh, it's called Mobile Metrics. And I fell in love with the idea. I thought it was super cool. And I, I quit my job and went and volunteered as a salesperson for this nonprofit. So that was, that was my beginning of 2012. And um, I basically went from making a good salary to zero dollars, <laughs> living off my savings. I lived in a slum, uh, which was kind of a cool thing. It sounds more badass than it was. It was like this little kind of slum, but not really like dangerous slum. There weren't like guys with guns or something like that. Uh, but it was a pretty, you know, not, not like a really nice place to live. Uh, so there's this guy, Paul, who actually passed away recently in a motorcycle accident. This guy from, from Paul from Bolivia, like really, really nice guy who like basically let me like live rent free and opened his house for me and showed me, showed me, showed me around. It was really, really nice. 
Um, and it was one of those periods of my life where I was kind of just like looking for something and um, didn't know, really know what was next. I was, I was volunteering for, the, for this uh, company and um, like actually like ended up helping them land a big contract with Unilever through a connect, connect, connection at Cornell. Um, and, and so like that was cool, but I was still looking for something else and looking for something to do for myself. And ended up um, getting connected to this startup accelerator called 21212. 21 is the area code of Rio. 212, I'm guessing you know, New York, um, right? So they would connect New York or American entrepreneurs with Brazil, sorry, American investors with Brazilian entrepreneurs. They're trying to be like the YC tech stars of, of Brazil back in 2012. Mm-hmm. Um, and I walk in there uh, uh, kind of on one of their first angel days. Like they had this demo angel day and they had demo day. And I walk in on the angel day and everyone, cause I like, I'm, I, you know, look from like, I'm from North America. Everyone started pitching me and I was like, guys, no, I'm a broke college student or broke <laughs> grad. I'm not an angel investor. Um, but I love to learn more about your companies and try and get involved. And there's this one startup that I really liked. I thought it was a really cool idea. Um, they had about 40,000 users at the time. It was called Zona Universitaria. It was a basically kind of like Facebook, but not like Facebook. It was kind of like a student social network, but for like academic, academically focused. So it would like help you, um, like share homework tips with your friends, help you find rides. It was, it was like helping you find ha- roommate. It was trying to like be like a everything for for students. And um, I had heard the company was like potentially going to get kicked out of the program because the founder was just like uh, on his own and he was more of a developer designer kind of person. And they were like asking him to be a little bit more focused and to start selling. So I, I ran I ran into him again, like uh, just randomly um, one day on Ipanema Beach of all places. Um, and he he was like, or I, I basically straight up told him, like, listen, if I join you, can I have like small part part of equity in the company and like be a co-founder? And he was like, you know what? Sure. Because he didn't really have anything to lose. And um, I I basically worked for like nothing. Um, and this was around the time when I, I started getting into my visa issues. But yeah, so we 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 went through the 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 kind of the accelerator program. That's really when I got into tech. Um, like I started learning about what a pivot was or like what a lean, lean startup. I read in Eric Reese's book and um, learned about customer discovery and landing pages, A-B testing, what, what, you know, what, what JavaScript is, what PHP is. Like I kind of started learning about that, how to talk to investors and raise money and all those things. Um, it was really, really cool. And I think I kind of like arbitraged my experience because as a 20, you know, I think I was 23, 24, I don't think I would have been able to do that um, at that at that level at least if I had been living in North America, mm-hmm. but because I was like the token North American guy who could talk to investors and kind of could sell rather than being a software engineer and kind of entrepreneur, like CTO kind of profile, they let me do that. So I got to pitch investors. I got to like, you know, it was great. It was really great. Um, so yeah, I'll pause there, but uh, yeah, that's kind of, you know, the, the no, it, that's, so it's incredible because it, it's kind of like, I mean, maybe a little bit different, but it's almost like you were a little bit of a big fish in a, small C kind of. I wouldn't say that. No, I, I was a lost kid trying to figure things out. I definitely not big fish. I was just like, you know, that, that like I just happened to be at a place where they gave me an opportunity. Um, and I might've not have gotten like, if I, maybe if I had gone to San Francisco and knocked on YC's door, or someone like one of the YC companies would have helped me be, be in, like an intern at the time or something like that. I would, it would have had success there too, maybe, but um, it was just like you being a unique fish, maybe better to yeah. that way. Like a, Right, you know, uh, uh, like I don't know, um, maybe like being a, a narwhal in 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 in, in South America is, is rare, right? You don't really see too many narwhals that the fish with the horn that's in the right. Arctic, right? right. Yeah, you know, so I think it's more that. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a really good point. I mean, it's true. I, I guess that's what I was thinking. It's just standing out, being different, yeah, yeah. Um, and being kind of memorable, where somebody could sort of 
think about how you could potentially benefit them or, or complement them. Um, so you, you you said you were working with this company. Uh, that's when your sort of visa issues started. Did you end up staying with them for a while? Like, how did it all go? Because it seemed like you did a couple of different things in Brazil before you finally returned. I think in 2014, right? You finally returned to to North America. Yeah, to Canada. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so the visa part thing was started started really bothering me because I wasn't able to like legally work for this company that I was personally a co-founder of, and just like I don't know what to do, and my my savings account started running low. Um, and so I, I, I had found out about this lo- like Brazilian uh, law where you can overstay, like you can extend your visa. It was you usually get three months for as a tourist, and then you can extend it for another three months. Um, and then if, after that, like you, you can't extend it anymore. And I found out that the the, the kind of um, how you say the uh, the penalty is is eight hundred reais or something like that. So it's very low. Um, and and funny story, like I, I, as I you only pay that you only pay that fee not when you leave Brazil, but when you come back. So, and then like I had, and I, and I left and came back a couple of times, but the times that I tried to pay that fee, I actually wasn't able to because the machine was broken or something like very Brazilian thing. So, um, yeah, so I actually only ended up paying it in 2018 when I was coming to Brazil to get married, uh, to, like but my wife and I had a, our second wedding in Brazil. So, um, and I almost didn't get let into, uh, let into the country that time. Wow. <laughs> so I almost didn't, didn't get to go to my, my, my second wedding. Oh, um, so yeah, that, that was uh, fun. Um, anyway, so, so yeah, I actually ended up going to like Falls de Guasú in Argentina, crossing the border and then coming back. And like, it was a whole thing. And, um, I ended up leaving Zona Universitaria partly because of this, because uh, the others, another startup in the same accelerator group, um, called Easy Aula offered me a higher salary and, and they had raised 600 K, uh, AI. So about like, I guess $200,000 or I'm not sure if the exchange right now, not, not crazy amount of money, but enough money to like, Apparently they were going to sponsor my visa. That actually didn't end up working out. I ended up getting fired, and it just was like a bad experience. Um, but um, yeah, then eventually I, I joined a company called Axiom, which is a, a large American company that did sponsor my visa. And so I finally got a Brazilian work visa like two years later. Um, but that, that only lasted for like six or seven months before I got fired again, and then ended up uh, going back to Canada in July 2014. Can you talk a little bit about some of those sort of endings with these companies only because um, I've been in that position too. I, I yeah. feel like it's almost like a notch on your belt. I mean, people wear it with pride and, and it's for different reasons. It could be downsizing. It could be a personality. I mean, there's so many different reasons. I was a bad employee. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and that, that, that's sometimes a valid reason too. It, it might not be that you were inherently bad. It just, it wasn't right. It wasn't the right fit. Yeah, yeah. But I'm curious if you could share, you know, maybe at least a takeaway or something from those experiences and whether that sort of helped you say, I got to just start something rather than joining with someone else. Yeah, the, the, the easy Aula one was really hard. Uh, it was probably the lowest point in my life because um, I went from like like making this hard decision to quit Zona Ristaria to go to Easy Aula. Like it was really hard decision. It was really awkward too because like we were all working literally in the same co-working space. It was just one big room. So I took my computer and like put it to the other side of the room and I could like see the company I used to be at like right there. And I would see them every day. And it was just really awkward. And looking back, like, I don't know. I mean, I did it, but, uh, and it worked out and like, I, I met my wife because of it. And so good things happened, but you know, it, it, it was a tough kind of awkward thing, l- l- lesson learned. Um, but, but I was in super high hopes. Like easy Aula had just got a bunch of money from Macmillan. It's a large publisher from the UK um, I was basically like the COO, second in command in charge of sales. But what I learned from that experience was that we spent way too much time and focused on building a product 
uh, and, and trying to sell something where there really was a market product market fit, we kind of covered it up. Like we had made a few sales here and there, but it wasn't that scalable and repeatable because we were doing offline in world classes. It was kind of like Skillshare. I'm not sure if anyone does from Skillshare, but like before Skillshare went online, they were doing in-person classes. Um, and so we wanted to be like the Skillshare of Brazil. But every time you do an in-person class, it just like is a huge, it's basically like you're, you're running a mini event and you have to find the place and people can show up late and you have to like, Oh, it's a whole, it's a whole mess. And so, and if you do like 15 of them in a month, like, or in a week, that's like, that's crazy. So, um, anyway, I was the only salesperson there and it was tough because I was like, also not that good at Portuguese. Like my Portuguese wasn't that good. I mean, it's not perfect now, but that was like, you know, I've only been speaking Portuguese for a few years back then, 2012, 2013. Um, and so I, I struggled a lot in that, in that role and ended up, um, you know, getting let go and, I don't know, like the, the company ended up going out of business later on and you know, whatever. But um, it was a really tough moment because like I had very little savings at that time. And um, like, yeah, like it was just was, it was a really tough time. So I, I was like go, going from like this this high of like pitching at Demo Day and talking to investors and like it's going to be huge to like being jobless and broke <laughs> and like living in a foreign country. And as awesome as Rio is, like it's still hard, you know, to go through that and and, and, and stuff. So um, yeah, and, and around that time, like, and, and both of those companies were ed tech, kind of thinking about how to help people and like learn, and then how people help people get jobs. But like that whole kind of, and, and I guess around that time, VanHack was kind of born because there's this program. This, so after Easyology and Workout, I started working on a, a project, like just kind of like a side project. I wasn't thinking it'd be a business, but just I started a course called Brazil Career Blueprint, which was basically like um, a lot of my friends were asking me how to move to Brazil. At the time, it was a you know, hot brick country. The, 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 the whole economic crash hadn't happened yet. Um, and so I, I basically created a course um, to teach people how to move to Brazil. And when I did that, all my Brazilian friends were like, yo, you're doing this the wrong way. You got to help Brazilians move to Canada. Um, <laughs> so that was kind of like the, the, the starting of the, the seed of the idea of that. Wow, that's so fascinating. Yeah, I can see how Brazilians are like, oh, hold on a second, we want opportunities where you're from. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose both sides are, are great, but um, wow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, but the people wanting to move to Brazil were kind of like, that would be nice. Maybe I'll go there, hang out in the sun, blah, blah, blah. Like, it, it wasn't like I need to leave and I need to go to somewhere else. Like that, that it's, a, it's a much different like vitamin versus painkiller. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, just to take a quick pause. We got a comment here from our friend. Hey, hey. Hey, gents, where's the best? What's the best destination right now for tech workers? Why why is it Canada? We'll we'll get to that in a little bit, Josh, but thank you for your comment. Um, And thank you for for watching. Rowan Fisher says Calgary is working hard at it for sure. Um, This is the most recent. Yeah, Calgary is definitely investing a lot of money to, to, to make that happen. In, yeah. Into tech, right? There's a big yeah. kind of scene blowing up there. Yeah, yeah, they, they, do, they do a good job. Their, their economic development agency is probably the best in, in the country. Uh, Toronto Global might, might be upset that I said that. <laughs> <laughs> and also Vancouver. I mean, Vancouver is really... British Columbia is doing a really great job too, no? With tech. Uh, I, I think we're not at like... I don't know. This, this might be getting a little political or like, you know... Um, Having I want um, like you know Canadian cities getting mad at each other, but I I, I think the Vancouver um, Economic Commission and BC Tech are are not doing as good of the job as other parts of the country. Uh, not that they're not doing a good job, or you know, I, I, but I think that other parts like just I think also like this is really tangible thing, but like I think um, Calgary just invests a lot more money, right? Like I think the city of Calgary is like has like a team of fifty or hundred people like just all working on this, whereas I don't think the Vancouver Economic Commission has as much resources. So I think just because of that and, but yeah, um, 
I also think, and you know, people in Calgary might be upset that I said this, that more people want to move to Vancouver than want to move to Calgary because the quality of life is, you know, frankly, a little bit better. Although cost of housing, et cetera, we can get more granular into the reasons. Yeah. But I do think Vancouver is a more popular destination um, than Calgary. So I think it's like they try and I don't know, make up for it might be the wrong word, but um, like they really try and go out of their way and show how awesome Calgary is. And uh, anyway, yeah, that's all. That's all. I can talk for hours about different locations, and then you get to Europe, and yeah. Anyway. I mean, it's like a marketing for the country. I mean, and because you have provinces, and you know, obviously, growing cities. Before we move on to that, just Nicolas says um, to, to you that it takes courage to do what you do. Entrepreneurs are essentially gamblers, all or nothing for what you believe in, what you feel is right, mm-hmm. and and that could be both for starting your own company, or like you said, Ilya, like just taking a leap of faith. You didn't start your own company, but you kind of restarted a journey by quitting whatever you were doing and um, you know, kind of starting a new a new journey with someone else who was building a company. For sure. And Nicola, I mean, I'll, I'll push back a little bit. Like, um, I think like gambling is, yeah, a little bit. There's a little bit of that. But it's also, I think, a lot of intelligent risk. Um, and it's not like you're going to go put it, like go into a casino and just put everything on red without any, like, you know, I think it's a little bit more like poker than it is roulette. Whereas I think poker is more of a skill of game, like a game of skill rather than that is totally a game of luck. Because, um, you know, you have the World Series of Poker and typically for some reason it's always like the same guys or girls who are at the top of the list of poker player. But, I'm, you know, I'm sure you wouldn't have that with roulette where it's 100% chance. So I do think that there's things that you can do to really prepare yourself and kind of put the odds in your favor. Um, so, yeah. And then also I'll say, like, I think there's some people and I, I guess I'm including that, that like just couldn't do anything else. So um, I see like working at the same job for 40 years as a much bigger risk than going out and starting your company, at least especially now when it's so easy and cheap to do that compared to how it was maybe 20, 30 years ago. And I guess last thing is like, I am super lucky. I have, I have a safety net, like my, my family, um, you know, I moved back home with, with my parents after like my experience in Brazil didn't work out, um, lived with them for a few months as I got back on my feet here in, in Canada. So, um, I think that there's something to be said for that as well. Yeah, no, thank you. I 100% agree with you on that. I feel the same way. I also moved back home. So you had this whole journey in in um, Brazil. You started company or you kind of co-launched companies. Um, you joined companies. You got you grew. You pitched. You got fired. You got fired again. Like or, you know, or, or it just is is you you, you were illegal illegal <laughs> illegally present for some time. You're like what a crazy journey. Um, you eventually moved back to Canada and then you just, you, you were just starting to share, you moved back home, right. To kind of like build the foundation back up. What did you do? You said you had started to think about this idea for VanHack um, where you realized, wow, there's actually a group of people in Brazil who need advice on how to move to Canada. Right. Mm-hmm. And like, so how did you, what were those first steps you took? Because now you're out of resources. I mean, you know, for the most part, it sounds like you're back at home you're kind of starting from scratch, but you have this huge network and you have this amazing experience under your belt. What did you do when you when you then like returned to Canada? Yeah, so coming back to Canada, I think I had this experience. I know I had, I had the experience of seeing Canada from a Brazilian point of view, which I think was really valuable. I had this reverse culture shock. Like I remember coming back home uh, to Vancouver after four years of, in Brazil and like being amazed that there's not walls in front of all the houses. And I could literally go up to like these huge fancy houses in, in nice neighborhoods and like knock on the door if I wanted to or see inside the house. Where in Brazil, like every house had a wall in front of it with barbed wire and all, you know, just as like 
one example, or going to the bank, you had to like go through metal detectors and things like that. So I really um, felt like, wow, this is a great place to live. Like I can walk with my phone at night and um, like not be worried about getting robbed. So I just kind of felt that appreciation. And then at the same time, I had started this, this Facebook page, literally just like on a whim one night um, called Morando Canada, which means live in Canada in Portuguese. And uh, like, like back when Facebook likes on pages were a thing back in 2014, that that like blew up to like 4,000 likes or I, I don't, was it likes or follows? I don't even remember. Um, a bunch of people were engaged with that page. <laughs> um, I can't even keep up anymore with all that. But anyway, it was it was like this eye-opening moment. And I got a bunch of DMs like from people and they would write their life stories like, my, you know, my name is this. I'm from, you know, from here. And I really want to move to Canada. I want to live in Canada, et cetera, et cetera. So I really found this pain of these people and this hunger that they had to change their lives. And, um, and then at the same time, um, when I was posting like, you know, uh, social media that I was back in Vancouver, a lot of my friends who I met at 21212 and all the meetups that I go to, all the software engineers, uh, mostly software developers would like post on my pic, pic, like comment on my pictures or send me DMs be like, I saw you move back to Canada. How do I move there? Like, I want to move there. This is like dream. Like I, I really want to go. And so I thought, Hey, maybe there's something here. And the original idea was to actually um, sell and um, do lead generation for for the coding schools that we have um, here um, and help people learn how to code because I was still very much in the ed- education like ed tech mindset um, and so I uh, that that was kind of the first idea and I posted a, a terrible looking landing page with Portuguese spelling errors online <laughs> yeah um, and uh, um, I got a, like a few hundred people signed up and and then they you know I had calls with all of them, the typical customer discovery, lean startup, trying to learn. And what I realized is that they don't want to come learn how to code. They already know how to code. They want to learn how to do interviews in English and how to, you know, have a good uh, resume and, and just get a job in, in, in Canada or originally Vancouver, right? VanHack is Vancouver for hackers, but now it's a van that moves hackers. So anyway, um, but yeah, so um, that that was our, our first product. It was called VanHack Premium. And now it's called VanHack Academy, where we teach um, soft skills to tech talent and help them prepare themselves for international job search. And then that built up uh, what is now uh, one of the world's largest uh, talent pools of uh, senior talent, senior tech talent who's interested in inter- international jobs. Wow, that's so it really started as a Facebook group. And really it started yeah. with you just trying to say like, what's the easiest way to create a community? I mean, Facebook, you just, make a group. You don't have to code anything. You don't have to build anything. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think, yeah, we started with the Facebook page and then, and then became a landing page. And then I remember we had like a messenger group, like, you know, a bunch of people in a messenger room and then we moved that to WhatsApp. Now we're on Slack, but yeah, it was, and and it's not like we started trying, I I didn't think like, okay, I got to create a community. I just like, I wanted to teach people. And the best way to teach people things was to be able to have them all hang out and connect with each other. It's like a, it's like a classroom. You go to a classroom and what's the best part of going to school is hanging out with your friends, right? Um, <laughs> at least it was for me. I don't know. <laughs> That's right. That's right. No, I totally agree with you. Um, I, I, the social aspect is so important. Um, and especially because I think here people could probably teach, learn from each other as well. It sounds like, um, as well as from you as kind of the main source of information. Yeah, yeah. Well, first values we hack together. So it really was about like, especially once you get hired or like in an interview, you know, share that. And that's much more powerful, right? Someone else who's kind of, who's like in your shoes, uh, sharing their experiences and talking about how it was for them rather than, you know, me um, or, or someone who's kind of like not the same as you in terms of like your, your 
both software developers or you have this more in common and you're both trying to get to the same place. So um, uh, success cases and sharing success cases from the beginning, even like success cases that weren't our success cases. Like I just, in the beginning, would go to different people who uh, were Brazilians. In the beginning, it was just for Brazilians, everything I said in Portuguese, like Brazilians working in tech in Vancouver. Like our first interview, I think, was with a Brazilian marketer named Andrea who was working at Hootsuite and talking about her experience of what she did to, to move to Canada. And, you know, it wasn't a VanHack success case. It was just someone that I knew. And then I just kept doing that. And then eventually we'd have people who VanHack helped too. And then, um, yeah, like the, the, the success case side of it, uh, the social side of it came kind of grew from there. So when did you realize this is going to become a company and I need to start getting serious about it? Um, it's a good question because I honestly did not take it seriously for the first little while. Um, I think the kind of... First time I realized it was, um, well, like the first kind of memorable moment was, um, so I really started that hack, like just to be able to pay my rent and not like my wife and I, I was working at like a not such a good job and my wife was studying for dental um, accreditation. So, um, you know, we, we, we weren't making that much money and uh, we had this moment where we're like, maybe if we move to a not, not as nice apartment and pay less rent, like we could have more money for other stuff. And so we went um, one day, like, to this really terrible basement suite <laughs> and um, went to like visit and, and just like it smelled bad and it was like terrible. And my wife looked at me after and was like, if we move there, I'm going to kill you. So I just like, as like a really like not like as a husband, like provider kind of, you know, stereotypical, I guess, but whatever. Um, uh, that's kind of my, my, I felt really like, okay, this is not good. Right. So I need to change, I need to change something. And I remember, and I remember waking up the next day and we had done a webinar that, that earlier that day for VanHack promoting our uh, VanHack Academy course. And I remember waking up the next day having like six or seven sales, like a bunch of people bought that, that product. And, 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 and I was like, uh, that money that I made overnight um, was the same difference between what I would have paid for rent at my place and, and like the, the, the bad place. And so it was like, I, I basically made the money from VanHack that kept me in my, my, my current condo that it was. So I remember that was like a distinct moment of waking up and being like, holy crap, like people actually bought this course. And, <laughs> you know, so, so that, that was a really cool moment. And then another moment was uh, when we had Black Friday. So um, we were like kind of just out of whim. I was like, you know what? Let's do a Black Friday sale. And uh, this, so we started the, the website and project kind of January, December 2014, January 2015. And then in November, we, we did like, you know, 11 months later, we had a, a Black Friday sale and we made like, I don't remember how much, but like more money than we expected. It was like, he was like, whoa, like a bunch of people bought. And I guess Brazilians love sales. So <laughs> it's a stereotype, but um, yeah, people like really like sales in general, right? So yeah, um, that that moment of like, like this is, this is I was making more money from VanHack than I was in my day job. Like, okay, something's gonna, like, I, I need to focus on this and take it seriously. Uh, and then I quit my job December 31st, 2015, um, which was a, yeah, it was a good way to kind of end the year and start the next one. Um, pretty scared, but at the same time, confident that things would go well and, and start taking it more seriously. So I have two questions for you. Um, the first question is, you said you were selling a course. So that means that when the, this Facebook group, community, like WhatsApp channel, et cetera, it sounds like it culminated into you putting together an actual course that you would charge money for. Yeah, 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 yeah. So um, at the beginning, it was like really janky, kind of like WordPress website with a bunch of links and just like nothing and that much. But we did this interview practice, which we still do today. Uh, that I was like the first teacher and then kind of like do live classes and in, in in on a Zoom room. Um, and then also like um, like a b- bunch of videos and, and templates and kind of like resume reviews. So we re- take someone's resume and review it and make it better, LinkedIn, et cetera, same thing, cover letter. Um, so yeah, it became like an online course, like a members, like a members area kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. 
Um, and and so this and the second question was, you know, this basically means that you were started full time, if you if you will, at Van Hack in January of 2016. Yeah. So that for about two years, you basically, or one to two years, you yeah, were kind year. of like one yeah. year. Okay, you were basically yeah. like part time. I mean, really just watch. Yeah, yeah, that that led to my third time getting fired. <laughs> um, so yeah, I used to work at Best Buy and like an e-commerce analyst, and uh, I think they caught on to the fact that I was working on that hack on the side, and like, yeah, you're you're you know not not performing up to up to where we want to. Um, but then I was really fortunate enough to get another job at a local startup accelerator called Spring, where the CEO of Spring, Keith Apple, uh, knew about VanHack and like was kind of a mentor for me, as well as like he let me kind of sell the lean startup course that we were selling. So it was a good, it was a good kind of next step for me. So I worked there for about a year, and at the time I had both. Um, but like towards the end, really VanHack started growing more, and and decided to. So it, a lot of people ask me like, when should I quit my jobs? Like, well, I don't know. You don't quit your job unless you have to, or unless you really have some financial security. Like I had. A, kind of family to support like my wife at the time um but yeah um that that was um about a year of like side hustle to become for it to become real so you so now you're jumping into van hack full time um and, and and i'm curious and i want to get to exactly what it does now but just before we before we get there what how did you scale it did you create more courses or did you start offering new services or like what was the first thing that you started to do to actually grow yeah. to the trajectory of where you are now yeah, so the biggest thing we did was start focusing on recruiting, and which is our main main core business now. Um, I realized uh, kind of accidentally that we can charge people for introducing them to developers, and I thought that was like the most amazing thing ever because I didn't I didn't know the recruiting business model, I didn't know anything of the recruiting world. I was always in the education space, um, and then when like I always was the kind of person who introduced my friends or people to each other, like from a business point of view, like sending that name, you know, first name, like name, like brackets name, like meet you should meet. Um, and then when someone was like, yeah, if you introduce me to a developer and I hire them, I'll pay you. I was like, wow, I can make money from making intros. Like, this is awesome. It's what I love to do. So, yeah, um, yeah kind of like by, like by accident, because people start asking me, like, how much does it cost to, meet, like, to, to get in touch with developers? And I started making those introductions. And, and now we have like a very, you know, in my mind, very sophisticated uh, platform where you, companies, you can sign up, post a job, get developers, candidates within like 20, 30 minutes and book interviews and a whole bunch of other features. Um, and yeah, like we... Um, we help like this year we're trending at like over one hire per day, which is exciting. Um, so yeah, we're, we're just like trying to get as many people hired as possible and, and scale. And so when, cause I read that you also raised a little bit of money a, a, a while yeah, back. A little bit, yeah. We did tech stars. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it was, was it through tech stars in Canada? Uh, no, in Berlin. So I think it was uh, Nicola uh, who was in Berlin. So yeah, I lived there for, for nine months, loved it. Um, we went to Berlin and, and, um, yeah, spent uh, spent like two year and a half basically in Europe between uh, Berlin, Lisbon, and, and Luxembourg, um, and uh, yeah, like a bunch of trips and stuff in, in all over too. Uh, and a lot of our business, like we work with like SoundCloud, Zalando, Booking.com, and many other European startups. Um, really, really good tech scene out there, and we're, we're really like I love sending people to tear up. Although Canada, Josh, Canada is the best place to move to, but. Honestly, man, like if you could, if you could go to Barcelona or you can go to like even Malta, Malta maybe a little bit smaller, but like sending someone to Europe is awesome because you can like go anywhere so easily for like a hundred euro uh, Ryanair flight. Um, but yeah, uh, uh, I, you know, I'm Canadian, so Canada, Canada is number one. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Um, okay. So you, so you raise money from Techstars and I guess, so that's it. I mean, since then it's just been organic yeah. growth um, all the way. 
Yeah, well, we had a smaller like friends and family investor back in 2015 as well, uh, Fred. So, so those were the two investors. Um, but yeah, like TechStars Berlin um, was, was like we finished TechStars in Berlin, and we're like, okay, let's raise money. But that's what you do after demo day, right? Like you have a pitch and you go and meet with investors. And all, and I was, um, you know, we were trying to raise. I, I won't say how much, but we were trying to raise X amount of money. And um, all the investors were like, no, this is a lifestyle business. This is a services company. It's not going to scale, etc. Um, and then we made the amount of money we were trying to raise in the last three months of 2017. Um, so I was just like, you know what? Customers are excited to talk to us. I'm just going to keep focusing on the customers and the investors that they, you know, they come, they come. But before, especially early in my entrepreneurial life, like I was like, oh my God, 500 startups. Oh my God, tech stars. Oh my God. Like I, I would put them on a pedestal and I would like spend way too much time focusing on my PowerPoint presentation on my deck rather than talking to um, you know, actual customers who are going to pay and like help like sustain, keep the business alive. Um, so that was like a huge lesson for me. And, uh, you know, one day I'm sure, you know, we'll, we'll raise money, but right now we're just kind of heads down and executing. Yeah. I can a hundred percent relate to that. I spent a lot of time, my, my, all of the tabs on my, on my browser that were saved was like 500 startups, YC, TechCrunch, all these yeah. things. And now yeah. they're gone. Yeah. Um, and not that I, and those are amazing organizations, obviously, but to your point, you know, unless you're building something that you think is going to immediately scale it in a venture style way, um, there's so many other business models out there that can really comfortably grow and, and make money on their own. Yeah. Um, like a lot of our competitors, like Triple Byte, Vettery, Hired, um, although Hired is kind of an interesting example um, you know, with what happened there recently. Um, you know, they raised a lot of money. So um, also Turing just raised like $30 million as a um, kind of tech mark, hiring marketplace from SF. Um, but then you look at TopTal, which is like a very well-known um, recruiting marketplace that they, 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 like, they raise very little money as well. So I don't know. I think the biggest thing for me is not even the money. It's more like dealing with the right business partner because you're literally getting married to a business partner who will be there and has like you know, um, is involved. So that, that part of it is like something I don't want to rush into, um, and really find the right person or group to, to work with. So I want to, I want to ask just one or two more questions to, to wrap up here. So the first thing is, can you give an overview of what Van Hack is doing today? So, you know, you kind of talked about this organic growth and you went from Facebook group to session to lesson to this and that, um, to then connecting people for money. What do you do today? What can people get out of it? Um, both for employers and for um, you know prospective workers or employees. Yeah, I love how you put it there. Connecting people for money—that's it's it's, it's um, yeah, it's, it's funny. It's it's, I, it's 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 it sounds so simple, right? But there's so many nuances around all that whole yeah. thing. Oh, for sure. Um, yeah, it's 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 harder than it sounds, and and it's funny. Uh, a few of our um, ex-employees actually like try try to copy that because they think it's, it's easier, and that's a whole another long story. But anyway, um, okay, so. Yeah, VanHack today is one of the world's largest um, com communities for tech talent that wants to get hired abroad. Our, our goal is to be um, the way that tech talent relocates and be the largest international tech recruiting company in, in, the, in the world. And, you know, one day the universe knows. Um, but yeah, we help companies hire senior developers and diverse developers quickly, um, full-time direct hires, so not outsourcing. And um, we, uh, yeah, we're able to help fill, especially hard to fill roles like, you know, senior software developer, um, machine learning engineer, DevOps engineer, um, UX designer, CTO, VP engineering. Uh, and next week, actually, we're doing a really cool event, um, which is a women in tech hiring fair, which will have about 230 senior developers who are women. Uh, we'll be connecting with around 60 employers from all over North America and Europe. 
Um, and uh, we think, well, you know, I'd love to be proved wrong. It's going to be the, the largest uh, women in tech um, for, you know, senior developer hiring fair there, there ever was. We'll see. Um, uh, but uh, we're really excited about that. And another thing that we're excited about is uh, we're launching an applicant tracking system that will be completely free. Uh, and um, it, the goal there is to help mostly startups um, be able to manage their hiring process and uh, you know save money uh, while they do that. That's awesome. And so for those companies that do that, they get the applicant tracking system, and then they can also benefit from the pool of applicants within VanHack, I suppose. Yeah, if they want, right? Yeah, so it, it's up to them if they work with us or not. It's more of like, here's an awesome free tool that we're giving to the community uh, because we've been spending five years or you know, a few years building that tool internally. We think it's great and uh, we'd love to you know have anyone use it to hire not just developers, but any role. You can post any kind of role, manage it, uh, chat with the candidates, book interviews directly, um, use our matching algorithm, uh, see like videos, the candidates, so a lot of really cool things that we built out that we want to give away. Um, as a way to kind of grow the business and get more companies knowing about that hack. Got it. So the last question I want to ask you just about the business is where do you see, I mean, you kind of talked about it a little bit, but where do you see the company going in the future? I mean, it looks like you have a lot of growth opportunity, not just from hiring, um, but also from building out some sort of a SaaS platform, even if it's a free tool, but it's something that you're providing value through. And mm-hmm. especially now after COVID, I mean, work from home, work from anywhere, Yes, becoming more normalized. We're all going to yes. go back to the office for sure. We are, but yeah. to some extent, I yes. think people want to go back to the office at least a little bit. But yes. there's going to be way more people who are going to do WFH and WFA. Yeah. Um, so I guess where, yeah, what do you see for Van Hack going forward? Um, and I guess how does that fit in? You know? Yeah, yeah. So um, like we want to be the way that the tech town relocates from point A to point B, no matter wh- where that is. Like you know, basically create a borderless world for for tech talent. Um, and uh, I think a lot more people will be in that category of tech talent moving forward as, as kind of software eats the world. Um, so, yeah, we, we see ourselves as being um, kind of that platform that not only helps you with your job, but also helps you with that whole post-relocation move as well um, from the candidate point of view. So you find a great job, find the learning that you need to understand how to get the job, get the actual job, and then you get set up with this amazing relocation experience um, and maybe some perks of like, you know, um, special offers at banks or um, mortgages or whatever it is when in your home country. Um, we also would love to work more with government because um, I think there's a lot to be done in terms of like promoting specific cities and regions around the world uh, to this talent. A lot of times the talent is not necessarily looking to move to, a, you know, New York, San Francisco, Toronto, Berlin. They're looking to move to, um, I don't know, maybe a, a, like a, a smaller town or kind of more better quality of life place. Um, so places like that usually aren't seen as tech hubs can attract this talent. Um, and then for companies, we want to be the way that they, um, you know, scale up their engineering teams and build diverse teams and, and manage, the, you know, to, and have those people wherever they want to be. And I think giving people the option to work from anywhere, literally anywhere, and being visa compliant and being kind of all that compliant, because um, we do have an in-house mobility team that helps with that and, and kind of giving that option to them is such a, a powerful card that they can play when they're when they're hiring and you know who are we kidding there like are zero unemployed software developers in the world so it's not easy to hire them um so you you know especially startups and scale-ups that are trying to compete with the fang and like large tech companies they need all the all the help they can get um so yeah we, we want to be that, that you know that partner to them and um yeah um be, be a, you know tech platform right so it's not just like a just like a services company it's a company where you can log in and do 99 or 95 percent of it uh like via the platform and then we have that human element there 
when it's needed to like help negotiate and close that offer or all, all, all that kind of thing. So yeah, that's, that's where we want to get to. And um, there's different projects we're working on, like the ATS and, and the events and stuff. Um, but yeah, I, I feel like we're, we're um, kind of at the right place at the right time post-COVID. Um, and, and one thing I'll just kind of say as we wrap up is I can't wait to help developers relocate to the U.S. because um, <laughs> I think there's a lot of really great places in America that are um, not getting candidates um, because those, those candidates can't get into the U.S. Um, and hopefully uh, H-1B will be uh, changed uh, one day. So, yeah. Amen to that. That's a great place to end because I I hope exactly the same thing. We 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 need we need more talent um, so that we don't fall behind. And we talked about this recently, kind of on LinkedIn. But rising tide lifts all ships. You know, Canada yeah. benefits, we benefit, Mexico benefits. You know, and I think the whole world benefits. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, one fun question to end on because you spent so many years in in Brazil, um, but you also now live in Canada. If you had to retire in one of these countries, which one would you choose? <laughs> well, I, I would say Canada because my family's here. But if I can bring my family with me, probably Brazil because you can go to the you know all the beautiful places. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, that's definitely a hard one. Um, <laughs> the weather is a big the big differentiator, I suppose. Yeah, well, actually, you know, we are planning on living in both countries, like half year, half year, or you know, 60, 40, 30, you know, 70, 30. So we spend the summer in each of the two countries. Um, so, you know, why not have the best of both worlds? Yeah. Oh man. That sounds like a dream. I love it. Work from um, anywhere, right? Hey, that's, that's the reality these days. Yeah. And if you can do it, if you can do it through fly flying or how, I mean, obviously you're going to have to fly, but. Um, yeah. COVID will be done in a few months or, or a year, like knock on wood, everything will be fine. And I mean, that's, that's how millions of people live this way already. They just, um, like they go to Japan for a couple of months or whatever they want to do. It's, it's totally possible. Yeah, no, that's true. Now I can't wait to travel again. Uh, well, Ilya, thank you so much. This is awesome. Appreciate you spending your time, um, especially we went over a little bit. So thank you. Um, yeah, my pleasure. If anyone wants to reach out, um, just shoot me an email, ilya at vanhack.com and uh, happy to chat. Yeah, uh, vanhack.com for, for folks who want to just learn more about the company as well. Yeah. Uh, so thank you for sharing your story. I think it's super interesting and something that a lot of immigration professionals should really be just keeping their eye open uh, uh, about because it's, it's, it all, we all fit into the same ecosystem. Exactly. Yeah. If, if you have any, if you know any great talent that wants to get hired abroad as an immigration consultant, uh, we have a referral program and then we also have a referral program for employers. So, uh, definitely chat with me about that. If, if you know companies that are struggling to hire talent and they're open to hiring from abroad, we can help. Perfect. Awesome. Well, thank you again, Ilya. Really appreciate it. Cheers. Yeah. Alrighty. 